stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again. This is Shot and Shield. Listening in, Bratislav, Slovakia, Grove City, Ohio, and Musselburgh, uh, Scotland. I am your parliamentarian and podcaster, Colonel of the Colonies, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida. This is the Shot and Shield Supercast, dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Chris Price to talk about the book Forgotten Victorian Generals, Studies in uh, Exercise of Command and Control in the British Army, 1837 to 1901. Uh, part of the from Muskets to Maxim 1815 to 1914 series from Hellion and Company Publishers, where Dr. Bryce is series editor. And Dr. Bryce is editor and contributor to Forgotten uh, Victorian Generals. We'll get into that in just a moment. And Dr. Bryce is also the author of Thinking Man Soldier, The Life and Career of General Sir Henry Brackenberry, 1837 to 1914, and the author of Brave as a Lion, The Life and Times of Field Marshal Van Gogh, First Viscount, of Goffer, first vice count, however you pronounce it. He is a lecturer and career historian. I'm excited to welcome him to the Shot and Shield Supercast. Dr. Bryce, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me on, Scott. So before we dig in uh, to this, I'd like to know just kind of what the difference is between somebody like a Chinese Gordon and obviously any of the accomplished generals in the book. Is it just that uh, uh, Gordon has a great press agent? (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Gordon died that uh, wonderfully uh, heroic death, didn't he, which obviously has always uh, enshrined him in the public consciousness. Um, I suppose when you're talking of Gordon as well, he's a strange mix in that he is, I suppose, part soldier. Um, he He leads armies, but he doesn't necessarily represent the British Army in that sense. I don't think he ever led a serious-sized British unit, to be perfectly frank. Um, Mm -hmm. He'd have commanded units during the Crimea War, but then after that it tends to be for uh, non-British powers or allied powers. Um, Whereas the guys in the the book, Forgotten Victorian Generals, they're very much professional British Army officers, with possible exception of, uh, of Lord Wantage, who was a bit more than that. He didn't have to be a professional because he married very well and uh, could afford to retire and uh, live out life as a parliamentarian. So I think really there is a very strong difference in terms of their perception. These are gentlemen very much tied to the British Army, whereas Gordon was always Gordon was Gordon, you know, Gordon was a a ruler to himself. So I can get some perspective on this book when just the title, Forgotten Victorian Generals, that has a suggestion about it that the generals were either, were they forgotten at home or were they forgotten in history? I think the latter. Um, I think at the time you would look at some of the names on this list and they were extremely significant members of Victorian society, um, much lauded, uh, particularly and I mean, I can speak from it myself, uh, Napier. Uh, Napier, for a period in the 1860s and 1870s, even into the early 1880s, is the British Army's go-to man. Whenever it looks like there's going to be trouble somewhere, uh, Napier's the man um, they want to send. Uh, he was the first choice to take over from Chelmsford in the Zulu War, the, the simple point was Napier didn't want to go. Um, He was also uh, 
in the 1870s, 1880s, whilst he's in Gibraltar. He is governor general of Gibraltar, which on the face of it looks like a, a, a insignificant appointment to a man of his skill and experience. But he's there so that he's on easy hands to be deployed anywhere around the globe and also close to London so he can be brought in. And when in the 1870s, uh, it looks likely that there could be a conflict with um, Russia, uh, he is actually called back to London to talk to various politicians and the Commander-in-Chief of the British Army, the Duke of Cambridge, about possible actions against Russia. And it is very well known that Napier was the designated commander of any British expeditionary force against Russia. Interestingly, with the, uh, the relatively young Garnet Wolseley as his second in command, and, and Wolseley is one of those figures, which perhaps I'll talk about in a little while longer, who was hugely significant at the time, but is forgotten today. Now, he's not in Forgotten Victorian Generals, and there is a reason for that. Um, there was a book by uh, Ian Beckett a number of years ago that uh, was Queen Victoria's Generals, and I deliberately wanted to avoid anyone who'd been in there when I uh, started putting together Forgotten Victorian Generals. So we left out Wolseley, we left out Roberts, we left out Kitchener, people like that. But in, in, a, in a more general sense, I mean, you say about Forgotten, I think pretty much all Victorian generals and military commanders, particularly in, in my country, in the United Kingdom, are very much forgotten. Um, Kitchener's legacy, I think, really lives on simply because of the First World War. Um, and in terms of, say, even Gordon, I don't think Gordon's particularly well known in the United Kingdom today. And I think a key reason for that is this general policy, which has been going on for years, of trying to collectively forget about empire. Um, and so the gentlemen who, in the book and the, in the wider Victorian military uh, are largely, I won't say written out of history, but simply forgotten. Maybe this is more a sociological question, a social question of societies moving in such a direction that uh, their heroes now are on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not necessarily, yes. you know, yeah. uh, through history. Yes, I mean, you, you firstly got to look and say it's, it's a very different mindset. It's a very different way of life today. Um, imperialism is, by and large, long gone. All right. I mean, I know perhaps uh, events in Russia would suggest that uh, it's not entirely gone, Russia and the Ukraine at the moment. But, right. Um, right. you know, there are, for a large sense, particularly in the West, we have tried to forget about empire. Um, try and put it behind us and also to, to an extent be apologetic about it but I'm not entirely sure always that that's helpful because if you apologize about something sometimes you can forget it in the sense of forgetting the lessons learned. Um, there were many terrible things done in the name of empire I'm not going to pretend mm. that there were not um, but there is much about our society that is good that came out of empire uh, there's much about our world that is good that came out of empire. Um, and I don't think you can look at one without the other. Um, I think I've rather gone off topic a bit here, but no, no, no. to get back to the forgotten element of it, um, I think it's very, it, it's just easy to pretend that these men don't exist because they represent a Britain and a world that for the large part is alien to us. In the book, Forgotten uh, Victorian generals. By the way, you can mm. uh, get that uh, on Amazon. Can you get that through Hellion uh, and publishers also? Yes, go go to the Hellion website, um, and you'll, you'll find it there. 
And actually, I would advise people to go to the Hellion website because there are, from time to time, you will find uh, discount codes on there, various sales. Uh, there's recently been a sale of From Musket to Maxim books. So, you know, please do visit www.hellion.co.uk. Um, and you can navigate through the website there and find the, the series from Musket to Maxim. And, um, you know, every time now and again, you will find um, discounts on there that will save you quite a bit of money. I like that. Everybody likes to save some uh, some dough. Well, they do, don't they? <laughs> uh, as for uh, Forgotten Victorian Generals, your, your particular contribution was uh, about uh, Field Marshal Sir Robert Napier, First Baron Napier of Magdala. How about that? Yeah. I got that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> could you give us a, a few bullet points? Yes. I mean, firstly, he's he is interesting for so many reasons. Um, he becomes, as I say, the sort of like the go-to general for the British Empire. But in many ways, he's quite an unusual general. Um, interestingly, he doesn't actually join the British Army to begin with. He joins the East India Company Army. Um, and he is the, f well, th there's some dispute over this, but as far as I can see, he is the first East India Company uh, officer to make field marshal. Obviously, by the time he's field marshal, the East India Company army is long gone. Um, but he is a, a first-rate engineer, both civil and military. That's one of the key points to remember with Napier. Um, his first appointment in India is on the... Uh, Doab Canal, um, which is a, a, a very, very old canal, first uh, opened, I believe, in the, if I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but it's in, in the 1600s by the Mughal Empire. Um, by the time uh, Napier gets there in the late 1820s, early 30s, um, it's in a fairly poor state of repair. And he does a marvellous job in helping to repair it, um, reducing the amount of silt, reducing the amount of flooding uh, from it. And in this period we're talking about, this is the time before the railways, before there are any significant roads in India, the canals are the lifeblood of, of India. They are the main means of transportation. So this is a hugely important thing that he does a marvellous job on and is much lauded for. Um, he also is responsible for the Napier cantonment system of, of barrack room layout, uh, which is considered, you know, uh, hugely significant. It greatly reduces the amount of disease uh, and, and infections. It allows for a much better standard of life for soldiers as well. Um, he's a man whose engineering skills uh, could have been, could have made him quite a wealthy man. Um, if he hadn't been in the army, he takes on numerous civil projects in India. Um, he all, he's a man who's on first name terms with people like Isambard Kingdom Brunel. You know, he's he's respected in that same sort of um, type of person um, in that professional sense. So he is he has a great significance in this regard. But he's also a professional soldier. Um, he's also a man who shows remarkable skill as a soldier. He's also, let's say it this way, um, what he brings as an engineer is being a first-rate organiser and a first-rate 
um, military administrator. Um, and in this period we're talking about of um, colonial campaigning, they are key factors. Um, you know, he's a master of logistics. He is a master of military administration. They're key. They're absolutely key to colonial campaigning. And so you've got a man here who's, who's rising through the ranks, both as an engineer, but also as a military commander. Um, he takes part in, in the, both, both Anglo-Sikh wars, in the second Anglo-China campaign. He plays a significant role in the suppression of the Indian mutiny, particularly in the, in the, in the later stages of it. Um, this is a man who, who goes on to command, um, be Commander-in-Chief India, uh, this is a man whose crowning achievement is the Abyssinia campaign, and we can get onto that later. But the Abyssinian campaign is just an absolutely remarkable logistical exercise. It, it almost beggars belief that it was successful, starting from scratch. You know, building right. um, things on the coast, on the so Red Sea coast, just go from nothing to to a huge military organization. So would you say that to be a good general leader uh, in any army during this time, you wouldn't want somebody who's an X's and O's guys. Okay, well, let's take this flank, take that flank. But somebody who is that administrator, who is that organizer, who can put all the aspects of that unit or that field force together in order to, you know, pardon the expression, to win yeah. or to succeed. You, you need both. And often you would find a situation, I mean, Let's talk about a very significant example, which is Lord Wolseley, who is, is a good combination of both in his own sense. But on his own staff, the famous Wolseley Ring, he has people like Brackenbury uh, who can do, do the administrative side of it, the logistical side of it. But then he has someone like Buller. And I know Buller's reputation is, is, is greatly tainted by uh, the South African War. But up to that point, he was an excellent commander if he was controlled. He was the guy who you could, you needed Wolseley and Brackenbury to get him to a point in the field where you could point to him and say, right, take that hill, take that flank, smash through there, and Buller would do it. Right. Um, Buller's problem was he didn't necessarily have that overreaching um, higher command leadership skill. Um, he needed the people to get him there to actually do it. Wolseley is, 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 is very good in that respect. And <clears throat> Napier is, in a sense, um, an early stage version of that. But I, I suppose, in, in a sense, just to go on to this, that we're talking about the Victorian period. There is a very much a change. Um, if you look at the early Victorian generals, these gentlemen really are Georgian in their outlook and in their thinking. If you then take sort of like the middle period of Napier, you've got that sort of change. And then you've got the later period of your Wolseleys and your Roberts, who are very much Victorian in mindset. So it, it's an advancing period. And as the period goes on, logistics and organization become more and more important. Um, and the fundamental thing to, to remember in most colonial campaigns, the biggest enemy for uh, the, the colonial power is the terrain, it's the climate, it's the topography, far more than it is the enemy more often than not. Right. I mean, which, would, look which at would explain which would explain some of the shocking losses in like hmm. South Africa against like the yes. Zulus. Yes. I mean, it's yeah, there was an um, 
there was a, an underestimation of, of the enemy there on sure. the part of Chelmsford very, very clearly. Um, but yes, the organization of that campaign wasn't great. Um, it wasn't terrible. Um, and perhaps on another day with another commander, he'd have got away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, th- this, this importance of, of, of having a campaign organized. I mean, you can take both Abyssinia, you can take the Ashanti campaign. Um, the medical side of it in terms of, uh, getting the troops prepared, conditioned, um, getting things in place so that they don't suffer as much from disease mm-hmm. uh, and illness and the sun, etc. Um, that is key because if you can get your, if you can get a British army of this period in front of a native enemy uh, in good condition, then I was going to say nine times out of ten, nine point nine times out of ten, the, the, right. the British are going to win. Uh, because of technological superiority, sure. because of discipline, because of organization. And it's getting them in that place, and it's getting them there in good condition. Um, often when you get the, the problems are when they're not there in good condition or they've been, they've been disrupted along the route to get to that point. So how would you explain something like Crimea? It, it's legendary that the organization was pretty slipshod, that yeah. the medical conditions were very, very scant. The British and the French and the Sardinians and mm. uh, the Turks are facing, at the time, probably what was probably thought of as a very formidable force in Russia, but they yeah. ended up winning. Uh, the, there's several <laughs> points to that, and, it, and it's a long answer in many senses. That's all right. Um, but I suppose, firstly, I, I would point on one thing with the medical. Um, it's really only that first winter that the medical system is really, really bad. Okay. After that, it's pretty good by the standards is standard of the age. Um, and I'd point you in, in the direction of uh, Mike Hinton's excellent book, which uh, Hallian published a few years ago. You'll find it on the, the, uh, the website, uh, Victory Over Disease. Mm-hmm. which is all about the medical services in the Crimea. Uh, and his, his evidence and, and quite extensive research um, shows that really it is only that first winter that's terrible. Now, part of the reason for that is because the British Army enters the Crimea <laughs> pretty much in the way it exited uh, Waterloo. Um, now, that's an oversimplification. But in the period in between there's been a great period of military retrenchment, um, which was obviously going to happen, always going to happen after the Napoleonic Wars, because mm-hmm. you don't need the army that fought the Napoleonic Wars during peacetime, right. uh, when it doesn't look like it's going to be a major campaign. I'd point you in the direction of the work of uh, Professor Hugh Strawn on this, who has shown that perhaps that's an oversimplification. Um, and I think he's absolutely right. Um, it's often called the unreformed army, that period between 1815 and the Crimea War. Uh, there's a justification for that to an extent, um, but it's wrong to believe that there is no change whatsoever during that period. There is a change, um, but it's not so, so sufficient and it's not enough to avoid the disasters. Well, disasters is too strong a word. The problems of the Crimea. Um, the supply system collapses. Well, that's because really there isn't a supply system. Um, that's that's the basic reason. Right. Uh, there is no full-time um, 
organization for military supply in the sense that was required for that sort of campaign. Now, you do get that to an extent uh, in the aftermath of the Crimea. And that is one of the significant things I think you need to look at in terms of the Abyssinian campaign. Um, this is an excellent logistical exercise um, that takes place, what, just over 10 years after the, the Crimea uh, debacle, where, you know, supply collapsed um, and they weren't able to. So obviously, Napier deserves a lot of credit for the way things went uh, in Abyssinia, but there obviously have been changes and things have improved. Um, but the Crimea is, I suppose, one of those incidences where uh, the British were knocked out of their complacency um, by having to fight a campaign which simply they weren't prepared, prepared for. for. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a, there's a very old... Um, I think it might be one of the Greek philosophers saying that uh, um, preparing peace for what you need in war, um, and that might be slightly paraphrasing, but there is a, a constant problem with uh, the British military throughout the generations, throughout the centuries, that um, in peacetime we rather forget about the army. Uh, during the wartime, we'll, we'll, we'll try and you know pull everything together during the peacetime they're rather forgotten about um and consistently you see armies entering the field perfectly equipped to fight the previous war um so you know in the crimea they're organized to fight the peninsula campaign well right. without the logistical side of it um there's a there's a famous quote by montgomery that due to the uh, the policies of the war office in 1939 the british army emerged perfectly equipped to fight the 1914-1918 war. Right. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's the way of, of the British military, British society. Um, so Crimea is a, is a, is a wake-up call. Um, as it happens, you know, obviously Britain doesn't have to fight another major European war until 1914. Uh, and there's any number of complacency and difficulties that grow during that period after that. But you get these periodic uh, shocks to the British system, which make them think, um, you know, our military is not up to, to the standard we require it to be. Well, no, it isn't, because you've completely ignored it for the last 20, 20 30 years or whatever. Right. Um, and then you, you get periods where governments tend to, to realise, particularly as the, the later Victorian period goes on, um, you organise a royal commission, uh, you have a debate in Parliament, uh, you, you pretend or you suggest these things that you're going to do, you make minor changes and then you forget about it because the British public and everyone else forgets about it. Um, you know, when you get to the end of the Victorian period and you see the South African War, um, a similar thing happens because of the significance of it. And there are some excellent uh, reports and commissions coming out of it. There are some significant changes. Um, you know, 1914, it's widely considered that the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, is probably the finest equipped, trained, disciplined army ever to leave these shores. Sadly, it's just completely um, insufficient in terms of numbers for the conflict it's being asked to face. You know, you've got an army. Britain's always behind 
European powers. We're talking about armies in tens of thousands when Europe's talking about them in hundreds of thousands. Uh, we're talking about armies in hundreds of thousands when they've moved on to millions. You know, uh, Britain's always that step behind, and it's partly you know, due to Britain's uh, never having conscription during this period, during peacetime, um, a very amateurish outlook, um, an army that is completely recruited by, in inverted commas, voluntary service, because um, normally it, it's that last that last resort that people join the army during most of that period, um, because they have no choice. So you know you, you've got a very different uh, mindset, and that's probably you know says an awful lot about why Crimea happens. It says an awful lot about why various military incidents happen and disasters during the period, and and also why in South Africa. Um, it takes over, five, well, roughly half a million men from Britain and the Empire to deal with a handful of poor uh, farmers. Uh, oversimplification, I know, but you know that's that's basically how it looks. Well, then you know, and then getting back to our, our subject matter, Sir Robert Napier, he gets uh, assigned the task to go into Abyssinia to deal with a warlord who's taken a bunch of hostages. That, and yes, that's, that's basically it, yes. In any other time period, was, uh, from a modern mindset, when, I, when yeah. I read a little bit about that, I was thinking to myself, you know, if it was nowadays, it would have been, you know, a couple of helicopters going in, boom, 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 <laughs> and, you're out, and you're out the door. You got the hostages, you've killed the bad guy, and uh, yeah. you're moving on. Napier goes in and says, I got I to gotta build a port. I got to build roads. I got to, mm. I got to put the infrastructure together even before oh, yeah. I, I fire a shot. Yes. And that's, that's, that's the great thing. You know, looking at the Abyssinian campaign, you've got to remember that uh, Abyssinia has no coastline during this period. Uh, Britain's greatest strength is its maritime power uh, throughout this period. Always, always was. Um, I don't just simply mean in terms of the Royal Navy. I mean, in terms of the merchantile Marine as well. Um, it gives Britain huge uh, reach, I suppose is the term we'd use today. Um, now, in Abyssinia, here we have a landlocked country. So they have to do a deal with the Egyptian government. And because Egypt is still technically partly under the control of the Ottoman Empire, they have to do a deal with the Ottoman Empire as well to basically loan them a bit of coastline. So a force sails up. Uh, a provisional force sails up through the Red Sea, literal. They don't actually know even where they're going to land. This is the, this is the is something that's important to understand. They go there to survey it um, and and look at where exactly they can land. Um, uh, Masawa is the is the first suggestion. It's it's the obvious place, but it, it just doesn't prove practical enough. So they go along Annesley Bay a bit further to to, to a place called Zula. And they land there and they decide, well, this isn't great, but it's the best we can do. Um, and they start building uh, a port, uh, basically out of nothing. They build a pier so that they can, so that ships can land stuff straight onto the pier. Uh, so they build this huge stone pier out of nothing um, so that the ships can come straight in. They don't have to ferry everything in. They just can tie up to the docks, unload. Now, once the stuff's unloaded, 
they've built a, I believe it goes for about 12 miles, uh, a railway. Now, it's always quoted as being a railway. Technically, I think it's a tramway. Um, but so then stuff is unloaded onto this port, uh, this pier that's been created out of nothing. A railway has been created out of nothing, which takes the stuff further inland to the, to the supply depot. A road has been created out of nothing to take it further inland. You have a whole infrastructure built, as I say, from, from nothing. Um, and it's, it's a triumph of uh, British technology, um, of Western technology as well, because there is some very important equipment you can talk about later if you like comes over from the united states um which is, is key in dealing with one of the very big problems of the abyssinian campaign so it it, it is just a, an amazing logistical exercise really when you it, think it, about it and it probably it probably helps that napier is an engineer yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely um i mean one of the uh when we were sort of talking beforehand one of the questions that you sent over to me was uh, how did Napier get put in charge of the Abyssinian expedition? Well, it's actually fortuitous this ends up with him. Um, but when the British government is trying to figure out how to how to deal with the situation in Abyssinia, and a military option looks likely, there's rather a game of pass the parcel uh, in terms of who's going to organise it. So the British government passed it on to the War Office. The War Office passed it on to the commander-in-chief at Horse Guards. He decides this is probably going to be better organised from India, so it gets sent over to the Governor-General of India. Um, then it passes around all the various commanders. It ends up with, with uh, Napier, in, uh, who's the commander-in-chief of the Bombay Presidency Army at the time. And uh, he basically, I mean, he does one slight further bit of pass the parcel. He passes it on to his quartermaster-general. To, to start having a look at. But between them, they sought out how this campaign could possibly be done. Um, and again, and I've, I've hinted at it there, but it is key to remember that this is very much a British and Indian uh, expedition. Um, a large part, I mean, there's, there's just over 13,000 combat troops mm -hmm. used. The vast majority of them come from the Indian Army and are what we would term at the time native troops. Mm -hmm. So the, the actual British army presence is very significant, uh, very insignificant really in one sense. There's one, one regiment of cavalry, uh, four battalions of infantry, uh, five, I think it's four or five batteries of artillery and uh, one company of engineers. That's quite small, really. The rest of it, you know, it, it comes from the Indian Army, from the, from the the different presidency Indian armies. Um, and I don't know whether your listeners will be aware, but at this period, up until 1895, there are actually three British Indian armies. Uh, there's the Bengal, Bombay and Madras armies, mm -hmm. and they all play a, a part. The Madras army plays a very insignificant part. It just sends some engineers. Um, but the Bombay and Bengal armies provide a significant part of the manpower for this exercise, very much an Anglo-Indian uh, expedition. Um, and one, just, just one very interesting 
little aside, battle honours from this period for Indian and now Pakistani regiments, most of them are what is technically termed in military speak uh, repugnant, i.e. they've been removed from the colours because they represent campaigns that do not uh, meet the standards of the time. So, for example, Indian mutiny colours, uh, Indian mutiny battle honours, you're not going to find them on modern day Indian Army and Pakistani Army colours, mm. understandably. Okay. The Abyssinian campaign battle honours, though, will still be found to this day on units of the Indian Army and the Pakistani Army. Um, it's one of those campaigns that's a, very significant, really, for the military history of those two nations. Can I tell you, that's very interesting uh, from the aspect of if you are in the Indian Army or an Indian Army regiment during the Indian Mutiny and you jumped in an expression on the side of the East India Company, I could see where now that would be like, you know, you're kind of a traitor, you know, yes. so, that they, yeah. so that that would not be something that you'd want on the on the no. on the on the honors list. Exactly. The other thing I want to get into a little bit with this Abyssinia campaign is Napier doesn't yeah. just uh, prove himself to be a, a good field general um, in a traditional sense, an engineer, but also uh, an ambassador, if mm. you will, because he has to make deals with other warlords to be able to, to get yeah. through. You know, could you t- speak about that just a little bit? Yeah, I, I, I mean, he has. Um, he always has a, an interesting approach in, in any sort of negotiations, and, and it's exactly the same in this period. He's sort of like the... Um, uh, what's what's the old saying? Is it the iron fist in the velvet glove? Right. Um, you know, it, he he knows he knows when to, to to shout and scream, and he knows when to uh, uh, cajole and encourage as well. Um, and he's exactly the same in these sort of negotiations. He knows when to offer things, and and, and obviously there are a lot of um, uh, weapons and equipment, etc., which are handed to friendly chiefs. Uh, during this period, most of it quite old by British standards, but reasonably modern by that uh, uh, by the standards of Abyssinia. Um, and obviously, when um, the British leave, uh, a lot it's not practical to take a lot of the the older military equipment back and, and stores, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A lot of it's just given to these friendly chiefs who who helped. Um, so he knew when to sort of you know we don't want to say bribery, but when to reward perhaps we should say. Um, and it's a period where yeah, he, he is, is very much tested, Napier, because, I mean, we talk about the local uh, tribal chiefs, and yes, he obviously is, um, and, and local warlords, he is negotiating with them. He's also technically carrying out diplomatic negotiations with uh, Dudros, the emperor, uh, who has taken the hostages. And he's trying to deal with him in a way that both saves lives, saves money, avoids bloodshed, but also at the same time he knows that there is an expectation upon him um, from from the British government and from the British public to expunge this insult, Mm -hmm. to to take out some sort of retribution um, upon Tudros. So he's, he's in a different uh type of, of diplomatic environment uh one which normally wouldn't be uh given to a, a a general um but there's absolutely no way he can 
reasonably uh, ask advice from India or even from London. Um, he has to make the decisions himself. And the fact that his decisions are largely um, agreed with, uh, you know, is, I think, to his credit, because there's no great backlash as in, oh, well, the general shouldn't have done this or he shouldn't have done that. Right. Um, no Monday morning well, quarterbacking, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, yes, exactly. I mean, and the biggest, the biggest uh, sort of criticism of the campaign is the cost, which is is vastly over what was expected. Um, I think initially two two million pounds was was voted for the expedition, and then provision for six hundred thousand pounds a month after that. So they were probably looking at about four million pounds um, for the cost. It, it's well over eight million at the, the final count. Um, that's not really Napier's fault. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, uh, shipping from from India was not as efficient as people thought it was going to be. Um, ships had to stay on station, particularly those that were um, under charter had to stay on station off the Abyssinian camp coast during the campaign for longer than was expected um, because they were required. And I can actually, you know, I will go in, in into a little bit why these modern ship, ships that were chartered from uh, private companies needed to stay off the coast. And one of the, the key reasons is because they're so modern, they've got uh, um, a uh, desalinization, uh, water uh, producing um, pumps on board. So they're turning seawater into drinking water. And obviously, you know, as you can imagine, this, this campaign, um, one of the key things is water. Right. It's a huge requirement for, for water. I mean, if you think about it, we're talking about and I can just give you roughly the figures, as I say, you know, we talked about 13,000 uh, combat troops. There's at least 30,000 camp followers and workers on top of that. Then you're talking about 18,000 mules and ponies. You're talking about probably 5,000 horses, uh, over 5,000 camels, about 2,000 um donkeys, uh, 8,000 bullocks, um, there's even 40 elephants out there as well. Now, if you think about all this, think of the amount of fresh water they need right. per day. Uh, it, it's astronomical. Um, the animals alone, it's estimated, require 150 to 200,000 gallons of water per day. That, that's just ast you know, astronomical figures. But even for the uh, for the humans, um, it's over sixty thousand. So you're looking at a total fresh water per day requirement of between two hundred uh, and two hundred sixty thousand gallons of water. That's, that's just enormous. How do you produce that? Well, this is where the technology comes in. There's ships in the harbour producing between 50 and 100,000 uh, gallons per day. There's two land-based uh, water condensers producing 12,000 or so gallons a day. And then there's a hugely successful thing that's brought in from America, which is the Norton 
patented tube wells. And there's a hundred of them brought in and they're, they're, they're wonderful because they can bore into the hardest rock and then pump up water, fresh water so quickly. Uh, they're an absolutely magnificent uh, part of it. There's also um, pumps brought in and miles and miles of, of copper um, uh, tubing so that they can pump water down from the hills uh, at, at Zula to, to the bay. Um, so pumping down fresh water. I mean, it, it's just an astronomical uh, amount of things that needed to be done just in that regard, just to allow enough water for everyone to live. Um, you know, if, and, it, and it's the technology that does that. And it's the technology that allows that to be achieved. I mean, yes, there's a fair degree of organizational skill um, and stuff like the uh, the Norton uh, patented tubes. It was Napier who specifically asked for them to be sent out. It was Napier who asked for the uh, the water pumps to be sent out so they could pump water down from the hills. Um, and then going back to, you know, obviously I've gone off a little bit there, but going back to the original point, this is one of the factors that creates a huge amount of cost mm -hmm. in that the most modern ships in the harbour are the ones that have these uh, water condensers. And they're the ones that are on charter from private companies because the Indian government, British government ships, transports of this period are quite old and they don't have the latest technology by and large. So you're looking at them having to keep these uh, chartered ships, some of them from, from P&O, um, and they need to be there because if they're not there, people are going to, to, to die because there's not sufficient amounts of water. And so they have to be kept on charter at a great cost to the exchequer to allow the campaign to go on. Now, that's not something that's necessarily Napier's fault. You know, he wasn't dealing with the contracts for the shipping. That was right. the government of India or, or the British government. So, yeah, you know, th there are huge costs involved in this expedition. But by and large, I think most people consider that it was... It was worth it for a sense of you know what price honor. Um, the uh, in, in this case, in this case, over eight eight million pounds. And, and the 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 cost is one thing, and then the infrastructure is the other. Once once mm. that's all said and done, now he has to get to Magdala yeah. to rescue <clears throat> these hostages. I, I think I read that uh, a couple of the hostages were freed, but the majority of the hostages were still were still being held and by the time by the time um napier got to magdala i think the uh the warlord i forget uh, i can't pronounce his name very was the duras tudros tudros and now that's how i say it i may be wrong um also during the uh the period we're talking about most victorian commentators call him theodore he was known as the emperor theodore which is the is the anglicized version of his name basically so he he gets to uh, in this case I'll go with Theodore also because it's easier to say. Yes, yeah, no. <laughs> easier for me. So Emperor Theodore gets to Magdala maybe a couple of days before before um, Napier gets there. Well, yes and no. Um, he he has escaped. Well, he has taken his hostages to Magdala because this Magdala is his mountain fortress. It's four hundred miles inland. <clears throat> he knows it's going to be very difficult for anyone to get to. So he's got his hostages there. 
Now, what he actually does is <clears throat> a few days before Napier arrives, he comes out to try and meet Napier with his army. And this is where we get the, uh, the Battle of Irogi, um, which is the only significant uh, battle as opposed to a siege during the campaign. And after this point, after he loses the Battle of Irogi, uh, Theodore goes back to, to Magdala. And at this point, he, he realizes the game is up. He actually originally tries to um, commit suicide uh, using a pistol that was presented to him as a gift by Queen Victoria. Uh, but the pistol fails to go off and he doesn't kill himself. And he's then trying to figure out a way to, to deal with this. And so he then releases all the hostages. <clears throat> now, perhaps we should just briefly explain that these hostages were a mixture. There was the uh, British um, consul uh, who had been under arrest for, for numerous years. Um, there were other various officials and diplomats who had been sent. There were a number of Christian missionaries of various nationalities. There were also a number of workers of numerous nationalities. Um, these were not all, by any stretch of the imagination, British nationals or, or even citizens of the empire who were or subjects of the empire who were under hostage. Um, there were numerous nationalities there. Now, one of the things, and I say most of them, a lot of them were people who had skills that were required by the emperor, um, the emperor Theodore. One of the things with, with Theodore to remember, and I don't want to talk too much about, about him necessarily, is um, that he, he comes to power in Abyssinia as very much a modernizing man. He wants to take, uh, he wants to bring Abyssinia forward in terms of technology. To do this, he needs people with the knowledge and the ideas. So there's lots of workers brought in from Europe to build up this sort of technology, weapons technology, but not just weapons technology. Uh, this wider system of, of trying to modernize the, the country. Um, and so there are a huge, not a huge number, but there is a, a significant number of European people within Abyssinia and not just workers, their families as well. And these are all the people who have been taken hostage. Now, after the Battle of Irogi, uh, knowing that the game is up, he releases all the hostages. Now, this goes slightly back to your point earlier about Napier and the di diplomatic side of it. Technically, once the hostages have all been released and they're back with Napier, it's mission over. Right. In theory, you know, he has all the hostages back and he does seriously consider um, withdrawing at that point. Part of the problem is, by this stage, it's very clear that they can't trust um, the emperor, Emperor Theodore, because he has gone back on his word numerous times. He's, he's said one thing, done another. There's a great deal of suspicion, and Napier knows that, right, okay, he might be saying, yes, here's the hostages, go away in peace, but the next day he could be sending an army uh, after him, or he could disrupt his lines of communication as he's trying to go back to the coast. There's also an element where he knows that there has been uh, an insult. And as I say, you know, the, the, the price of honor uh, that he needs to remove. There's also an element where 
you know, Napier's decided there needs to be re regime, regime, regime change. Sorry, I couldn't say that then. Um, and, uh, you know, they need to get rid of uh, Theodore. Um, and so there is the final, there is the siege and attack of the fortress of Magdala. I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. I don't want to interrupt you, but at this no, point, sure. though, he, yeah, as as he's gotten the hostages back, he's considering leaving. Is in the back of his mind, he has to figure that newspapers back in England, if they don't see smoke yeah. coming from his his uh, exactly. Theodore's fortress, it could be considered a failure. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, he he does have that pre pressure upon him. And, you know, he, he has to make the decision. And it's a very hard decision to make in many respects because he's also, he's up against time because he wants to get back to the coast before uh, before the climate changes, uh, before the rainy season. He's running out of time at this point. And he's either facing a choice where he has to leave fairly soon or he's going to face the possibility of having to um stay for the season at Magdala, neither of which um, is, is particularly a good choice to have to make. He doesn't want to leave immediately because he knows, as you just said, you know, that uh, if he doesn't uh, destroy Magdala, it could be argued that he, he'd, he'd failed. Uh, he also knows at the same time that to stay and winter there um, would stretch his supply lines considerably. Mm. Um, which are already in danger. There's also the possibility that uh, relatively friendly uh, chiefs at this moment in time might decide to turn against him and start raiding his supply lines. Always a distinct possibility. Uh, all the followers of um, the Emperor Theodore may well as well. And it's so it's, it's a really difficult position he's in in many respects. Uh, and he... He also knows that taking Magdala will not be uh, the easiest of tasks. He struggles. He does manage to get some of his mountain guns into position to fire on the on the, the defences, um, but not really to to do any significant damage because of the uh, the location of it and the, the topography. It's very difficult to do that. Also, he has no choice. The only entrance to the fortress is along a causeway. He has to launch a frontal attack with the possible, you know, uh, lot large losses of life that that could entail. As it happens, there aren't any um, to any significant degree. And the, actually, the, the taking of the fortress of Magdala is an interesting story in and of itself. Uh, the engineers get to the gates with the powder bags to blow the gates, but they've forgotten to bring the fuses with them. And so they're stuck outside the gates, not able to to break through. Fortunately, there's a couple of soldiers on um, on hand, uh, Privates Bergen and uh, Magna, both Irishmen who uh, take an initiative and manage to find a bit of the defences where the uh, the defences the wall is quite low. They manage to, with their bayonets, uh, knock the uh, thorns which have been placed on the top like a sort of a natural barbed wire and then they manage to get themselves up and whilst one of them helps up other soldiers the other lays down covering fire and they manage to basically get sufficient soldiers over the wall that way then they can go through and open the gates 
Um, and that's how Magdala Falls and the, and the two privates I mentioned are both uh, given the Victoria Cross for their, um, for their actions during the battle. Um, you know, it's a remarkable little story attached to the campaign. But, uh, you know, I suppose there is a sense in which, both with this and with the Battle of Virogi, that Napier is quite fortunate. Um, there's, there's a bit of luck there. Um, mm -hmm. But I suppose you can say in a sense, it, I do remember someone saying to me years ago, if you are organised and plan ahead, you find that luck rather takes care of itself. Right, and I suppose there's a sense yeah. in, in which that you know he'd he'd made his own luck. I don't I don't want to leave uh, Napier, but I yeah. want to make sure that we do this on uh, keep the keep the time a little uh, on on target here. But the, I mean, there, you got seven chapters, forgotten Victorian generals of the other generals and field marshals listed outside outside of Napier. Which other one? Uh, which other ones listed that stand out uh, to you as uh, interesting? Yeah. One of them that just stands out and says, that, you know, I really need to be known. I don't need to be forgotten. There's there's two, actually, for me, who I would say really do need to be remembered to an extent. George White um, is an interesting character because he is largely considered to be one of the uh, writer hopes of the British Army. He's commander-in-chief of the Indian Army for a period uh, at a relatively young age for that position. Um, he is widely considered to be one of the better generals around. To an extent, his career flounders on his choice during the South African War to allow himself to be besieged in Ladysmith. At that point, really, he, he is out of, he's out of the war. You know, he's besieged in Ladysmith. Um, he's playing a side role at best. Is that what the commander-in-chief in South Africa should really be doing, allowing himself to be besieged? No, he probably shouldn't have done. His career never really recovers from that. Once the, the siege is lifted, um, you know, his, his career is pretty much over as an active military commander. But before um, that... But before that, exactly. Right. Before that, he, he's widely considered to be one of the brighter uh, British Army officers and is a potential, you know, successor to your uh, Roberts and Wolseley's of, of the uh, of that period um so yeah he's incredibly significant now Major General Sir John Charles Adar uh is another who I really wanted to have him in this chapter uh he's one of the few I actually for most of these I said to the author who do you want to write about White and Adar are the only two I actually went out to authors and said Will you write about them, please? Um, I approached Rodney Atwood for George White because I know he's dealt a lot with with Roberts. Uh, he did an excellent Rodney Atwood did an excellent biography of Roberts, and White is sort of a, a protege of Roberts, so he was the obvious choice for that. Uh, and Sir John Charles Adar is a very uh, interesting character within sort of the War Office of the, of the later Victorian period. And uh, my my friend Edward Gosling has written quite a bit about the uh, the war office during this period, and so I asked him if he would do that. Now, John Charles Adar is one of the great technical soldiers. He would have been an excellent chief of the general staff, but at this period, the British Army had no general staff. Uh, that doesn't come until after the South African War. Um, so, so. John Charles Adar is in charge of the intelligence department 
and the intelligence department are, are basically a general staff without the without the name. They're, they're doing many of the jobs that on the continent would have been done by a general staff um, at at half the cost and at half the staff as well. They're, they're, it is a remarkable uh, organisation, and a lot of it. Uh, the, the, the success of it was due to my man Brackenbury, who we discussed briefly earlier. You mentioned the book, uh, and Brackenbury really sort of completely modernised and changed the department. And his second in command during this period within the department for the later period was Adar. And so Adar eventually ends up succeeding Brackenbury as head of the intelligence branch. And there's one really significant period. Uh, that needs to be considered. I mean, he has an interesting career, but it, one real interesting thing is that before the South African War, Adar puts together a report, an intelligence report, that is incredibly accurate on what the Boer intentions are, on their um, manpower strengths. He almost, I, it's almost spot on with the manpower strength. There's a little discrepancy, which is... I won't explain, but it's entirely understandable. Um, he estimates the number of guns they have. He estimates the number of uh, rifles, of, of ammunition stored, of, of shell storage, et cetera, et cetera. And he's remarkably close. I mean, considering, and, and this is really, this is intelligence done the old fashioned way. Whenever anything was sold to the ball states or, or any state uh, around the world, the intelligence department would make a, a note of it and just put it away in, in a file and then it would all be collated over time and so you'd get a fairly good estimate of what each military power around the world had in terms of capability. So, so this report is put together and it's startlingly accurate about what the balls have and what the balls are going to do. It's sent to Lord Wolseley who is the commander-in-chief of the British army and for whatever reason it goes no further than there. So, and, this, <laughs> and that and that's the problem, you know. But that, that seems like it's a, it's a it's a a repeating circumstance in the world. Yes. How yeah. how how many yeah. times has the intelligence community had the information, passed it on, and people went eh, they ignored it, and yeah. then something bad happened? Exactly. <laughs> and and then during <clears throat> excuse me during the um, the war and in the, the immediate aftermath, there, there was a real. Um, criticism of Adar and his department um, that, you know, that obviously they were saying, well, there was a failure of intelligence. Well, yes, there was. There was a failure of anyone to act on the intelligence, <laughs> not on it to be reported. And there was a huge amount of criticism uh, of Adar, both personally and his department. Uh, and for the large part during the conflict, the, uh, the British government um, allowed them to take the blame, quite literally. Um, there is a, a, a noted conversation of Adar's wife speaking to a member of the British government and saying, well, yeah, of course, we know it's not his fault. But, you know, if we say it's not his fault, they're going to say, well, it's your fault then. And so they're, they're used as a, as a patsy in that sense, and they're allowed to take the blame. And it's only after the conflict that these reports start to come out that, well, actually, no, the intelligence department was spot on. Uh, just no one acted on it, and exactly, exactly where the failure is, is, is a longer conversation for um, perhaps another time. Um, it got sent to Wolseley. Now, at this period in time, there are 
Wolseley's a bit of a, um, a fifth wheel as commander-in-chief. He's commander-in-chief, but his authority is largely gone. Uh, also, his health is in serious decline, and there have been suggestions that he might have been suffering from some form of Alzheimer's or dementia or something, and mm -hmm. that might explain. Again, that might be a convenient excuse by those who were in government that they could then blame Wolseley um, afterwards. Uh, I, I think there's, I can't believe, I really can't believe that Wolseley did not pass it on to someone in government. Um, they either then ignored it or failed to pass it on again, I don't know. But it, it is a very strange situation. But Adar, again, is one of those really significant and interesting figures. It, it's a shame that uh, his reputation was so tarnished by that. He would have been an excellent uh, chief of the general staff. Mm. Um, there's actually, there's a period in 1890 where there's something called the Hartington Commission, um, which is a royal commission by, by Lord Hartington, um, which looks into the state of the army. And that actually recommends um, a general staff be created. There's an interesting, there's two, two members uh, of, of the commission uh, who, who, who might be interesting to, to know about. One of them is Brackenbury, who obviously is the designated next chief of the general staff. If, they if the Hartington Commission had been enacted upon, Brackenbury would have been the first chief of the general staff, mm -hmm. no mm -hmm. doubt about it. There wasn't really anyone else. And Adar would have been his second in command and would almost certainly have succeeded Brackenbury at some point as chief of the general staff. Now, the other person who's, who's on that commission who you might find interesting is, is Lord Randolph Churchill, um, the father of Winston Churchill, um, who, again, is, is a supporter of a, a general staff, but not necessarily in the terms that the commission wanted it. Uh, and so there's basically the commission is, is largely ignored by government. They enact certain parts of it, but they don't do the general staff bit. Now, when at the end of the South African War, there are various royal commissions, uh, the Isha Commission, the Isha Committee, uh, decides that basically, and it says in its report, if the Hartington Commission had been put into, act, in, into to action in 1890, a lot of what went wrong in South Africa wouldn't have happened. Um, and so, you know, you would have seen Adar very much as a significant part of the British Army if things had gone differently, if, if you know, if the Hartington Commission had been enacted upon, uh, I'm sure there'd be a lot more people who remember Sir John Charles Adar today than, than there are. Just a reminder, uh, listeners, the book is entitled Forgotten Victorian Generals Studies in the Exercise of Command and Control in the British Army, 1837 to 1901. Why did we start at 1837? Uh, technically, because that's uh, when we, we, we're looking at the Victorian period. So we're looking at really sort of like the era of Queen Victoria there, aren't we? Okay. Um, the reason I've gone those dates is because that's when we're talking about the first, the first sort of uh, period of military service. That's, that's the period of military service they, it, it covers. But 1901, oh, yes. because yes. really, although technically... Um, we, we do have officers in there that serve after that. That's really sort of like the end of the period of um, command in the field. Gotcha. The, uh, the reason I ask is because 
maybe this is more generalization, but generalize, uh, generalizing 1815 seems to be the start of the Victorian era. Is that, um, is, is that general? Is, is, is am I generalizing it? I mean, and technically, the, uh, the Victor- it's hard to say when the Victorian period starts. I mean, obviously, Queen Victoria comes to the throne in 1837. Right. And then dies in 1901, which obviously is why, as I, you know, as I say, that the period 1837 to 1901 it covers the Victorian period, and as right. it's called, forgotten Victorian generals. Mm. That makes sense. Um, it's 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 hard to say exactly what you classify as the Victorian age. Right. Um, you can say in one sense the reign of Queen Victoria, but uh, you can spread it either side as well. But obviously, in Britain, after that, we get the Edwardian age. Um, and although you know Edward dies in in 1910, I believe um, that's still often called the Edwardian period, right up to 1914. So you know it, the, these sort of term, bits of terminology um, in terms of periods, they're always open to a bit of interpretation and and leeway. But up up until technically until 1837, we're talking about still being in the Georgian period within British society. Gotcha. Even though Queen Victoria comes into her reign in 1837. Again, I might be over simplifying. I'm a very much of an amateur in this. A mentality which would engulf itself into the Victorian age. It seems to have started in the, the late 1810s, so 1815 to 1820. Yes. I mean, I I, know, I, I entirely understand what you're, you're driving at there, where, you, where you're coming from. But I suppose in terms of looking at it from a military point of view, particularly within the British Army, mm-hmm. um, there's very much still sort of like a Georgian mentality, particularly with the senior generals. Okay. Um, and I would say that lasts probably until after the Crimea War. Um, I know it sounds strange, you know, because we're, we're sort of we're getting 20 years into Queen Victoria's reign there. But that but would, make, that would make sense. that would make command leadership. But that would that would make sense if you're an officer in 1805 and you're a lieutenant, and all of a sudden now you're a colonel or a, or a, a general going into Crimea. Yeah. It would make sense that you're still going to have that type of mentality. Well, um, I mean, and the then afterwards, is- you know, it's like uh, we got a there's a there's probably that mental shift that has to happen due to that strike point in history. Yes. I mean, look at look at Raglan, for instance. I mean, you know, he, he was very much a, uh, he, he was at Waterloo, you know, and this right. is this is a man who uh, was very much of that Napoleonic Wars period of, of, of military thinking, I suppose, is a better way of putting it. Um, and you look around as well, you've got Hardinge as well, still very much of that era. Mm-hmm. Now, ironically, um, and I say this ironically because those of us who study the British military history period, I suppose in one sense, the modernizing of senior command starts with the Duke of Cambridge being appointed uh, commander in chief of the British Army because he he's actually, to begin with, he, he's quite a, a, a modernist. Now, most people who study the period are going to think, what on earth is he talking about? Because... Uh, Cambridge is often seen as a uh, a drag on reform, as a man who is deeply conservative. He's often characterised as a bow and arrow general, um, and he is to an extent. Uh, he is deeply conservative. Um, I wouldn't call him a bow and arrow, arrow general because I think he was much more nuanced than that, which is something that I don't think a lot of people appreciate. 
Um, but he was certainly a drag on reform and he was certainly a deeply conservative man. But he is the first senior commander, and obviously he owns, owes his, his senior command to the fact that he's the cousin of the Queen. But he's the first senior commander who isn't really of that Peninsular War, Napoleonic Wars, Waterloo, vintage and era. So in a sense, he is a start of a, of a move away from that. Um, and I suppose, you know, he is really the start of the Victorian military period in that sense. He, he's a good he's a good starting point to point at and say that, you know, after the Crimea, when Cambridge takes over as commander in chief, it, it, it's a new era. The last thing I want to ask, and that is uh, to continue a little bit on this topic. Each episode of Shot and Shield, I put up a poll about a certain subject and then communicate uh, the winners, if you, as it were, um, in each new episode. Now, the current poll that we have going on, and I actually held this poll over so you and I could have this conver- uh, chat about it just a little bit. Um, the, the new uh, Shot and Shield uh, Supercast uh, debuted on February 1st. And it already had four weeks of the top five. And I, I wanted to hold it over so you and I could discuss it just a little bit. But the current poll is who best personifies a hero of the empire. And as a hero of, of the empire, I define it as someone in whatever, whatever empire, whatever country, that the population is going to stand up and say, that's my guy. That's the hero. That's, that's who I, I look up to. Uh, that's who I want to be. You know, if I'm if I'm a little kid in the street and I'm playing ball with my buddies and somebody says a name of a hero, oh, I want to be like him. Whereas today, today it might be a sports figure. Back in the uh, 19th century, it might have been any one of these number of uh, people that I have listed uh, for the poll. One of the, of the people listed, obviously, uh, Chinese Gordon, Teddy Roosevelt, young Winston Churchill. Uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, the Haitian revolutionary uh, Toussaint Louverture, Simon Bolivar, uh, from the Philippines, Jose Rizal, and from Ethiopia, Raz Alua. And I wondered if there is, if you have any comment or perspective on any of these, uh, your choice, or if there's anybody that uh, you would suggest adding, and then why? Well, when we spoke before, um, I did say to you that as you would telling me about that and explaining to me about that, the name that first popped into my head, even before you said it, was Gordon. And I suppose Gordon does uh, epitomise the British Empire. And in terms of the, uh, the appreciation of the, uh, the population, um, I think you, you may well be aware that even after his death, um, photograph not necessarily photographs, but um, drawings, uh, sketches, of Gordon were to be found in many houses uh, across the United Kingdom and across the empire. Um, there was even a period where shortly after, I think to an extent they, were, they could be found before his death. Um, and people even went so far as to putting black ribbons around them after his, after his death. Um, the significance of the way in which he was held, I think, is is very difficult for us to understand with a modern mindset. Um, 
you know, we alluded to uh, perhaps the modern day equivalent is sports heroes to an extent. Yes, there's something much more than that. Gordon, I suppose, in Britain, epitomized empire. Uh, he was perhaps the best example of that Christian warrior that was a powerful piece of imagery within British society of that period. Um, this was a man who actually had rather a strange, um, no, that's perhaps unfair, I was going to say a rather strange interpretation of Christianity, but he was a man who was deeply Christian and deeply religious, but he didn't belong to any church. Um, you also see him as a great uh, crusader in or against the African slave trade. Um, that, I suppose, is what really sort of enhances his reputation considerably. Um, but there is also this element of Gordon where he is just, <laughs> well, star raving bonkers is, is, is a good way of putting it, um, to use the vernacular, because he, he, he's an individualist. Oh, yes. I mean, <laughs> the, the man should have been torn limb from limb at various points. There's that well-known story of when he goes into a region of the Sudan, which I don't think you'd even go into these days without being wanting to sound um, offensive. Uh, I don't think you'd go into it today unarmed as a, uh, as, as a British individual or as a Westerner. Um, and he goes in, in his full governor's uniform, uh, unarmed, uh, except for a cane in his hand, dismounts his camel and starts ordering people around and saying, well, you'll do this and you'll do that and you're not going to do that anymore, you're not going to do that. I mean, he should have been torn limb from limb. Um, but he, there was something about him. There was this authority, this whatever it was, and he, he just had this power of command. Um, this power of leadership, this, this mesmerizing sense in that, you know, he just could command respect and people. He was feared, I suppose, to an extent, but he had just such confidence that I suppose this image of um, the British Empire of, you know, these, these, these white men from this, this small island in Europe, going around the world and telling people what to do. And, uh, you know, he epitomizes that. So in that sense, he very much epitomizes empire. Um, I do, and, you know, it's, an, it's something that, it's a characteristic that lived on for many years. I do remember the documentary filmmaker, Alan Wicker, might not be known to you, but it's quite big in, in Britain for, for a large period. Um, and he used to do a, a similar thing. He went to conflict zones in, in, in Africa and, and various places. And uh, he used to just use this, this, this good old-fashioned British bluff. And, uh, you know, there'd be these armed men and he'd just say, oh, good morning to you. Thank you very much. With the BBC, we're just going to move through. Would you mind moving out of the way? And he'd just wander through with his camera crew and set things up and start filming. And these soldiers would just, you know, well, get on with it. Um, very strange. And there's a sense in which, you know, Gordon epitomizes that characteristic. Um, there is something. I mean, as I say, to use a, a, a British expression, he's mad as a box of frogs, but he is something quite 
remarkable. Mm-hmm. There's something compelling about him. Uh, I don't think he'd be the nicest of people to know. Um, <laughs> I think he'd be very infuriating. But uh, there is just something remarkably compelling about him. Mm. And to, you know, and I don't, and I know I've, I've I've said Gordon, and I would say Gordon is probably the man who epitomizes hero of empire to me. Um, I do. There are other names on the list. Churchill, perhaps not so much for me. I would have to say, um, Teddy Roosevelt. I have to say, is someone who I admire greatly and have an awful lot of time for. I do think he's a remarkable individual. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the variety of his career and, and, and various things that uh, he did and accomplished, uh, a quite remarkable man. Um, he'd perhaps be fairly high up on my list. Um, another one I don't think was on the list you you said, but in a sense, I suppose he sort of took over from Gordon in the public consciousness in Britain would be Kitchener um, as a hero of empire. I can't remember if you said him on the list. I don't, no, don't think he did. No, I didn't. Um, I think Kitchener would probably have to be. I mean, in, in one sense, he was a... He was a disciple of, of Gordon, uh, very similar in many respects. And, of course, during uh, you know, the reconquest of the Sudan um, was, was very significant. Um, and in a sense, it was seen as um, revenging Gordon. It was much more than that. It wasn't that. But that was one way it was sold to the public and the public interpreted it and kitchener was seen as the man who avenged gordon um you know he's also a very unusual and rather difficult individual um there are very many parallels with with gordon i suppose as well there's that significance and you know you probably know the poster as well as i do the the famous one of him uh, pointing forward, saying, "I need you," which was right. a great thing. Cool during the um, during the First World War, you know, he he would perhaps be the other I would think of as a, a hero of empire. That there are others, but I, I, I'm I'm not necessarily going to mention them because they're they're very obscure, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it would you know we'd go off at a tangent there. But uh, I think Gordon definitely. And also, for me, as a follow-up, would be would be Kitchener. That's interesting because I didn't. When I was uh, putting the list together, I was trying to uh, not be so. Uh, I'll say Western specific. Western centric, yes. Yeah. No, I, I did. I did appreciate that in the the list the, of names you read out. Yeah, because you could you could make an argument that uh, if you're going to put anybody on the list i could see kitchener uh absolutely when you said that's like obviously you know in my mind it's like yeah obviously um i was actually i was actually a little hesitant to put uh young winston churchill on there uh just from the aspect of you know at the time from from my reading and you know again i'm i'm so much an amateur at this you know him going to um to go into South Africa, you know, um, also Northwest frontier of India. So yes, there's a lot there that you can <laughs> say, you know, uh, but, but he did was any, at the edge of empire. But would any, uh, would any child playing ball in the street go, 
Oh, that Churchill. He's, he's my guy. <laughs> I, I, you know, so it was kind of hesitant. I, 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 I may have looked at it from a, uh, from a skewed view of what he turned into rather than what he was prior. And some, uh, some of these uh, other gentlemen, like Simon Bolivar and uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, I, I know of, and I have a little knowledge of, but, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, uh, someone in Italy and please anybody who listens uh, from Italy, uh, we have a few listeners in Italy, um, you know, chime up, you know, send me an email or get on the Facebook um, you know, and say, you know, Giuseppe Garibaldi, absolutely. He's a, he's a father, the father of modern Italy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, um, you know, or yeah. Simon Bolivar during, you know, the Paraguayan or the three armies or three nations conflict, you know, uh, you know, where he stood in that, you know, is that somebody that somebody in South America goes, he's my guy. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know I mean- that. Well, I suppose the irony of, of both Garibaldi and Bolivar is that they were, you know, calling them heroes of empire. They were both fighting against empires. Right. Um, <laughs> they, they were the enemies of empires, really. Um, but yes, I, I, I know, you know, I get the point of what you're meaning. Um, Garibaldi, I think, has a rather interesting reputation in Italy today, doesn't it? Because he's, he's, he's I think he's rather seen as, yes, important in Italian unification, but then... Towards the end of that period, he's almost sort of like a, oh, I don't know, a block to Italian unification. Right, right. There's, there's, a, there's a strange thing. He's a very much an independent-minded individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and it needed others, really, to come on and, and really complete his work, I suppose, in that sense. Right. Um, but Bolivar, I, I, I can't say I know really a huge amount about other than the sort of like general stuff um but you know obviously a, a significant individual during that period without a, a shadow of a doubt well i know I, for... I do wonder as well whether perhaps if you're talking about empire in the general sense a name that, that, that came to me would perhaps you'd have to look at someone like otto von bismarck okay yeah absolutely um, because i i think that if ever you know, you're a little German boy and you're playing ball on the street, you know, Bismarck is going to be that name. Yeah. You know? uh, to an extent. Yes. I mean, much, mu- much know, more he, he than, was... uh, much more than like Mulkey. Yeah. Yeah. Mulkey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, cause I, I tried to imagine also, uh, you know, from a Russian point of view, uh, from a Japanese point of view as well. Um, cause, uh, Japan at the time was uh, developing their empire, uh, during yeah. this, this, this period uh 19th century um but as a you know what and this is as a western and as an amateur it's kind of hard because um this especially in america you don't have that sort of education you're you're searching it out on your own mm, yeah. You know? yeah well i don't i don't think we have that sort of education in the uk these days i'm not quite <laughs> sure what they do teach nowadays um you know I, I was fortunate that i was of an age when when i did my a levels a lot of it was because of my exam board um, Victorian political history. Mm-hmm. So I, before I even got onto the military side of it, I was quite familiar with your Disraelis and Gladstones and, uh, you know, the, the great reform bills and uh, uh, national insurance uh, bills and things like that during that period, the Old Age Pensions Act, uh, the National Schools Act, things like that. I, you mm-hmm. know, I, I had quite a, 
knowledge of, but I, I would be very surprised if they're teaching that sort of thing even at A level in the UK today. There's a lot of <laughs> we could that could turn into a whole new show right there. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Dr. Uh, Chris Bryce, thank you so much for uh, joining uh, me today. I really do appreciate it. Uh, the I haven't uh, I've read little pieces of the book, but I haven't uh, read the whole book yet. But I really I plan on sitting down and and rolling through it. I do appreciate you coming on with us today. Thank you. No, I've enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, you've been listening to myself and Dr. Uh, Chris Bryce uh, talking about the book Forgotten Victorian General Studies in the Exercise of Command and Control in the British Army, 1837 and 1901, part of the From Muskets to Maxim series, 1815 and 1914 series from Hellion and Company Publishers, where Dr. Bryce is the series editor, as well as the editor and contributor to Forgotten Victorian Generals. Once again, Dr. Bryce is also the author of the Thinking Man Soldier, The Life and Career of General Sir Henry Brackenberry, 1837 and 1914, and the author of Brave as a Lion, The Life and Times of Field Marshal Hugh Goff, the first Vice Count of Goff. All these books found at the Hellion and Company Publishers website. If you go, uh, Dr. Bryce did uh, suggest that there might be some discounts on there. And so you want to go and check that out. Still ahead, we're looking to break down our top five and receive, and also I receive an email, which I know is going to turn into an editorial. And that's next on Shot and Shield, the Supercast. This is Shot and Shield. I hear that conditions in your army are appalling. Well, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions and you'll just have to accept them. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast War Gaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. Hey! What the blazes is this? A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. All right, Marines. Eyes hunt. This is Shot and Shield. So thank you for continuing to listen to Shot and Shield, the Supercast. So it's time to reveal where I asked you to name your hero of the Empire, the top five. I know that it's a little late because I wanted to get input from our incredible guest today, Dr. Chris Bryce. You had a choice between Chinese Gordon, Teddy Roosevelt, young Winston Churchill, Giuseppe Garibaldi from Italian Unification, Simon Bolivar from South America, Toussaint Louverture, the leader of the Haitian Revolution, Jose Rizal, a leader in the Filipino revolt against Spanish imperialism, and Ras Alula, Ethiopian leader. Also, a friend of the podcast, Devin, added Colonel Frederick Burnaby, British spy who ventured into Russian-held Kiva and Central Asia. So let's get to it. As voted on by you, the Shot and Shield listener in the Facebook group and on Twitter, here we go. Number five. It's a tie. Giuseppe Garibaldi and Frederick Burnaby. Number four. Toussaint Lavature. 
the Haitian Napoleon. Number three, young Winston Churchill. Number two, Teddy Roosevelt. And by an overwhelming majority, number one, Chinese Gordon. Thanks to all of you who participated in the top five. Now, before I announce the new top five, if you have a suggestion for a top five, you can send it to me via DM or through the Facebook or Twitter pages or email me at shotandshield at gmail.com. I'm up for suggestions. Bring it on. Now, here is a question that might get some conversation going because it's revolting. I'd like to know which of these were the most interesting revolutions of the 19th century. I'm putting up five suggestions in the top five post, which is on the Facebook group right now. The Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. So my starting five are the Italian Unification Revolutions, the Hungarian Revolution, the March Revolution in Germany of 1848, the Boxer Rebellion, and the Second Carlist War in Spain. Feel free to add your own. So the new top five question on Facebook and Twitter is, what was the most interesting revolution of the 19th century? So get your vote in today and hear the results in the next Shot and Shield Supercast. On Twitter, at Shot and Shield, and in the Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargame Group. Now, before I close up the podcast, I got an email that made me think. Germany calling, London calling, Moscow calling, Washington, D.C. calling, Peking calling, Sydney calling. Message for you, sir. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. So this email came to me from Paul in Ottawa, Canada. And Paul writes, Scott, I am very happy to have a show like yours. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate it. It's very informative and you can, <laughs> you, you can kind of be funny. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I have a question. Where can I get news about new miniatures? Can you add a segment to your show that gives us news about the stuff we like? Okay. So, you know, Paul, I don't know. I'm not a journalist. I, I just don't have the time to research all the companies that encompass this industry, right? And the problem is, if you don't know about the company, then you don't know where to look for them, right? I think this is, this is like the problem with the industry. The industry preaches to the choir. You end up relying on friend recommendations. There seems to be like no outreach to grow the hobby. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's uh, some people out there that are trying to grow the hobby and doing outreach. I don't know. I was tuned in to miniature tabletop wargaming when I was very young. It was 1978, 1979. I went to the local hobby shop. I actually saw some guys running a game. Where can you do that now? You can't. Hobby shops are closing down left and right. Everything's done online now. So it's tough to do any sort of outreach. It's tough to do any sort of games outside unless you're going to a convention. So how do you grow? You're, you really are preaching to the choir. I'll give you an example. I know that Pendragon, the company, is having their annual painting contest very soon because I got a tweet about it. The only reason I got a tweet about it is because I'm friends with a guy on the Twitter who's friends with a guy on Twitter who's connected with Pendragon. Pendragon does very, very small stuff. Not something that I usually get involved with. I usually stay in the 28 millimeter round. They have stuff that's much smaller. But wouldn't it be nice to know that they have a, a painting contest going on? Well, now you do. And I will bet, I'll bet you, 
that there are kids out there who would love to enter, but they don't know about it. That's not Pendragon's fault. It's just the times we live in. So I don't know what news about our hobby I could bring to you. I promise, though, that if I see anything cool, I'm going to let you know. But that's the best I got for you. And I'll give you an example, right? I'll give you an example right now. I saw this the other day, and it blew my mind. Firelock Games, you know, the guys who brought you Blood and Plunder, which is the pirate game, right? And every time I see the pictures of the pirate game, every time I see the pictures of the Firelock Games on the uh, Facebook, I go, oh, maybe I should do pirates one day. Oh, that looks like such, that looks so fun, right? Well, I was kind of excited because, bam, I see this. This is actually from Firelock Games on February 1st, and I don't know how I missed it. Blood and Steel is uh, their new game that's coming out very soon. And this is exactly what it says. I'll read it. Blood and Steel is a Victorian age skirmish combat game set during the time period of 1837 to 1901. It is based on our critically acclaimed blood and plunder skirmish system, but with changes that capture the style of Victorian age combat. The initial core book will cover the following conflicts. Anglo-Zulu Wars, American Civil War, Mexican-American War, Spanish-American War, Second Seminole War, and Maori Wars. The hardcover book will be on pre-order, uh, it says in early February, for shipping in March and April, uh, uh, and will be uh, figure agnostic. So I guess there's no figures attached to it. Any figures from any line should work just fine, which is great. And we hope to be bundling figures from other companies during the pre-order phase. So that's really interesting to hear that about Firelock. Because like like myself, like I'm stuck on the men who would be King's rule set. I love it. It's outstanding. Sword in the Flame. Grew up with it. Great. Love it. Here's another one. And from a, from a company that knows how to do real good rule sets. So that should excite you as it excited me. But guess what? Unless you're in the know, unless you have friends that have friends that have friends, you're never going to know this stuff. So it's very tough. And so maybe there's a site out there somebody could clue me in on, shotandshield at gmail.com. Throw, uh, throw me some information about where we can get normal information like this. I'll put it on. I don't mind. I'll give you a news source. I'm not uh, Walter Cronkite or anything, but why not? So, Paul, I appreciate the email, but alas, it is the end of this episode. Or should I say the episode edition? Don't forget, March 1st, another Shot and Shield Supercast will drop, which will include more of your emails, a new watch-along, a new scenario for Scenario Builder, another audio archaeological discovery, and a chat with Chris Pringle regarding his book about the Hungarian Revolution. I'd like to thank Dr. Chris Bryce for the great chat about forgotten Victorian generals. And I'd like to thank you for listening in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and Eugene, Oregon, and all around the world. This is the Shot and Shield Supercast, the podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. I have been the Lord Scott of Florida saying thank you. I'm out. A British tar is a soaring soul as free as a mountain bird. His energetic fist should be ready to resist a dictatorial word. Sing, walk, sing. His nose should pant. And his lips should curl. His cheeks should flame. And his brow should furl. His bosom should heave. And his heart should glow. And, and his, his fist be ever ready for a knockdown blow. This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity. 13!